Dr. Andrew Weil is an icon in the United States and increasingly so elsewhere. His name is a multi-million dollar brand, selling everything from herbal supplements to face creams to the benefits of meditation. His broad, smiling face with his distinctive white beard has twice been on the cover of Time magazine, which in 2005 named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He is America's best-known doctor. He wasn't when I first met him in 2001. Then he was the founder and director of the programme in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. I sought him out during a long period of chronic, undiagnosed illness after I'd exhausted all the specialists I could think of in the UK. His best-selling book, Spontaneous Healing, about the body's innate ability to heal itself, was what drew me to him, and the fact that he had serious credentials. He's a medical doctor, or MD, and a graduate of the prestigious Harvard Medical School. But he's also conventional medicine's fiercest critic. In many books over several decades, he's challenged it for being exclusively focused on the body at the cost of the mind and the spirit, and for being, he believes, too expensive, too dangerous and not very effective. So he's turned to alternative systems, Chinese, Indian, various holistic therapies, in an attempt to combine them with conventional scientific medicine. He calls his model integrative medicine. One of his critics has called him a snake oil salesman. So, years after I recovered via my own circuitous route, I've returned to Tucson, Arizona, and in this edition of Things Unseen, I've come to ask Dr. Weil what he means by mind-body-spirit medicine, why there's such a huge market for it, and how he answers his many critics. Since I met you over a decade ago, you've become known as the guru of alternative medicine, the avatar of new age medicine. What do you make of that? Well, I don't think those are accurate. I'm not an uncritical proponent of alternative medicine. You know, I teach and practice integrative medicine, which is the short definition is the intelligent combination of conventional and alternative medicine, but really it's more than that. This is a new system of medicine that attempts to refocus medicine on the body's innate healing system, treat people as whole persons, meaning mind, body, spirits, not just physical bodies, places a great deal of emphasis on lifestyle and practices real prevention through that, emphasizes the practitioner-patient relationship, and makes use of all available therapies in managing disease. You've come out of Harvard Medical School, you've had a good medical training, and yet for over 30 years you've had a real go at conventional medicine, almost biting the hand that fed you and could have fed you quite handsomely. Why? What's so wrong with it? Conventional medicine is very good at some things. It's very good at managing trauma, at acute, very serious illness, but it increasingly has failed us in managing the chronic diseases that are so prevalent today, many of which are rooted in lifestyle choices. It simply neglects the non-physical dimensions of human life, which I think are very relevant to health and healing. And it just pays no attention to the vast traditions out there from other cultures and from throughout history of methods of healing that are not dependent on expensive technology. Today, especially in the U.S., healthcare system is collapsing. Conventional medicine is too expensive. It's too reliant on technology, including pharmaceutical drugs, 
which cost too much. Our populations are older and developing the diseases of aging. The younger generations are here, especially we have an epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes, and conventional medicine just can't deal with all this. So I think integrative medicine is the future. It, it makes sense economically. And our center is a center of excellence at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, so we are fully integrated into a conventional medical institution, and we mostly train physicians and allied health professionals in the system. You've said that there's a common link between religion, medicine, and magic that's become obscured. What did you mean by that? Well, I think that all of these institutions really attempt to deal with making things better in our lives. Religion and magic deal with the invisible dimension, with the non-physical dimension. I think medicine in the past dealt with that, but really has now excluded that. In Native American tradition, the term medicine has a much broader definition. To Native Americans, when they talk about medicine men, medicine women, medicine places, medicine bags, it really includes those other areas that have to do with magic and religion. And medicine men are healer priests, and I guess I'm wondering if you think it's time for doctors to go back to the the shamans they once were. (laughs) Well, I think that the sad thing is that people project the same kind of belief onto doctors in our society that people in traditional cultures project onto priests and shamans, but our doctors are not trained to handle that projection of belief. You mean the doctor dressed in his white lab coat is the priest of foregone days, and and we expect them to fix us with a pill? But we invest them with the same kind of power and belief. So just as one example, the words that a doctor uses to talk to a patient have great power, but doctors are not trained to understand that, and so often unconsciously say things to patients that I think actually interfere with healing. For example, to say, you'll just have to live with that, or there's nothing we can do for you. You know, these are very powerful messages coming from a priest or a shaman. But some people would say you overstress the connection between mind and body and spirit, uh, and that you're really overplaying it and taking medicine into a field which is just not science. Well, I don't see how you can overplay it, given the fact that it's been so neglected. The evidence for interactions between mind and body is overwhelming. And yet, although there are many therapies that take advantage of that connection, they're horribly underutilized today. This is things like hypnosis and visualization, uh, various forms of psychotherapy. I mean, there's a whole range of mind-body medicine. These therapies are extremely cost-effective. They don't cause harm. They're even fun, often, for both client and practitioner. And they're broadly applicable, and yet they are not utilized. And they're not utilized because this is not part of the training of physicians. Some might say they do have the potential to cause harm. Well, I think compared to the potential that allopathic medicine can cause... By that you mean conventional mainstream medicine? Just look at pharmaceutical drugs alone. The last statistics that I saw are that adverse drug reactions are between the sixth and fourth leading cause of death in the hospitalized population of patients in the U.S. And this is hundreds of thousands of deaths a year directly due to medication. There's nothing comparable in any adverse reactions produced by mind-body therapies. And where does spirit come in? What do you mean by spirit? Well, that's a little trickier. I make a strong distinction between spirituality and religion. To me, religion is mostly about institutions, and institutions are mostly concerned with perpetuating themselves. To me, spirituality refers to the non-physical dimension of human life. 
which I think is very real. And I, in my books, in my teachings, give a lot of people what I would call spiritual advice. And these include things like listening to music that elevates your spirits or bringing fresh flowers into your home. That might be called a a sort of secular spirituality. That's fine with me if you want to call it that. I mean, I don't think spirituality necessarily refers to a deity or to any kind of ritual practices. If people want to use religious practices as their way of accessing spirituality, that's fine with me. But I personally am much more comfortable with what I would call secular spirituality. I absolutely believe in a non-physical dimension of human life. And I think that dimension strongly influences our physical health. You come from a reformed Jewish background. Has that influenced your thinking in any way? No. Reformed Judaism was as close as you could get, I'd say, to a secular (laughs) form of religion. never really resonated with me. And when I began reading about Eastern religion, and especially Buddhism, that had much more meaning to me. I meditate. I gravitate toward Buddhist psychology. I would say not Buddhist religion. When I saw Buddhist religion in practice, that left me as cold as anything I'd seen in my my upbringing. But the philosophy of Buddhism I find vibrant and exciting. And Buddhist psychology, I think, is an extremely valuable body of information and practices. And I think that meditation is a very valuable technique. I also put a lot of emphasis on breath and breath work. I teach breathing exercises to all patients. And I point out whenever I get the chance that in many, many languages, unfortunately not English, the word for breath and the word for spirit are the same word. Spiritus in Latin, prana in Sanskrit, pneuma in Greek, ruach in Hebrew. And so throughout history in many cultures, people have equated the movement of breath in the body with the activity of spirit. The essence of breath is a rhythmic expansion contraction that's non-physical. It is connected with a physical movement of the chest and expansion of the lungs and so forth. But I think in some way that connects us with everything in the universe because everything has that same rhythmic expansion contraction. And you see the same oscillation down on the subatomic level. And possibly the entire universe is involved in a cosmic breath cycle of expansion and contraction. So I think that there is something quite real there. When you are observing your breath, you are really looking at your spiritual essence. And you would say that the breath is an example of where the mind and the body and the spirit all connect. Absolutely. And this has very practical ramifications because since you can breathe totally consciously or totally unconsciously, this is operated by two different sets of nerves and muscles, breath offers you a unique opportunity to manipulate the involuntary nervous system. And imbalances in the involuntary nervous system are the root cause of a great many health problems, everything from hypertension to many chronic digestive disturbances, circulatory disturbances. And by imposing rhythms with your voluntary system on the breath cycle, gradually these can be induced in the involuntary side of things with great physiological changes that can be very beneficial. I think probably quite a lot of people within medicine might accept that, but I guess you became quite controversial for writing about the psychotropic qualities of plants that you took when you travelled around South America after Harvard Medical School and on how altered states of consciousness can help promote health and how it basically brought you to this new model of medicine. You would almost say that's not science at all. It was an intuition-based thing. Well, I'm a great fan of intuition, and in my teaching to the physicians that come through our center, I tried it encourage them to develop their intuition, to rely on it more. The early part of my career was in ethnobotany, and I did a lot of research on psychoactive plants. My first book, The Natural Mind, was about altered states of consciousness and their value. 
drugs are only one way of getting to those states. You know, there are many ways, including manipulating breath and meditating. But I do think that altered states of consciousness have great potential value because in them, again, often the controls of the involuntary nervous system are accessible. And I've just collected many dramatic cases of healings that have followed people going into altered states of consciousness and in them discovering root causes of illness, for example. It's never, though, endeared you to the mainstream establishment, has it, that promotion of these alternative drugs? You are very much a heretic. Well, I'm, I guess I'm happy with that role. If I become non-controversial, I think I'm not doing my work. You know, I think integrative medicine is quite mainstream today, that the term integrative medicine, which I helped popularize, is now fully accepted in academic medical discourse. I'm the general editor of a series for Oxford University Press, the Weill Integrative Medicine Library. So I think this is just an example of how accepted this is. Is that partly because it's such a huge market that it's been consumer-driven? It has been consumer-driven for many years, but I think now the main incentive is really uh, hardcore economic analysis because things are so desperate out there and healthcare costs are so uncontained, and integrative medicine really offers the promise of controlling those both by its attention to lifestyle medicine and by bringing into the mainstream treatments that aren't dependent on expensive technology. There's a relaxing breath that I teach all patients and all physicians. And of all the remedies that I've given out over the years, that's the one that I've gotten the most positive feedback about. It takes all about 30 seconds a day to do. And if practiced over time, produces dramatic physiological changes, lowering of heart rate, of blood pressure, normalizing of digestive function, and so forth. To me, that's a perfect example of what integrative medicine can do. But critics say that you promote certain alternative therapies and particularly herbal supplements that don't have a real evidence base, that haven't been rigorously tested in the ways that double-blind, triple-blind okay. studies that science tests. <laughs> I have so much to say about that. Double-blind, randomized controlled trials are one way of getting information. They're not the only way. And frankly, at this point, we don't need more randomized controlled trials to see, for example, whether St. John's wort works better than a placebo or an antidepressant drug for the treatment of depression. What we need now are what are called outcomes and effectiveness studies. These are done in large populations comparing conventional approaches head-to-head -head with integrative approaches in common health conditions that absorb most of our healthcare dollars. Those kinds of studies are expensive to do, they're difficult to organize, but this is the kind of information we need. Say you have a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, does an integrative treatment plan, which would include dietary change, use of dietary supplements, maybe use of herbal anti-inflammatories like turmeric, for example, a mind-body approach, proper physical exercise, maybe the use of a whole system medicine like traditional Chinese medicine. How does that treatment package compare in terms of medical outcomes, cost outcomes, patient satisfaction with what a conventional rheumatologist would prescribe? But some, and there are many skeptics, would say, yes, but you're just trying to get off the hook of the more rigorous testing. And in fact, uh, you're promoting experience over evidence that it's anecdotal, it's not serious science. And even one critic said you're denigrating science. You've enlarged the potential following for magical and pseudoscientific health products. I consider myself a scientist. I use scientific method. I pay attention to the data that comes from scientific studies. In its extreme forms, the evidence-based medicine movement is absolutely analogous to religious fundamentalism. I have always advocated a sliding scale of evidence in 
deciding whether to use therapies or not that works like this. The greater the potential of a treatment to cause harm, the stricter the standards of evidence that should be held to for efficacy. When you look at something like the breathing technique that I mentioned, there are very few studies of breath and the effects on physiology published in medical journals, so there's little evidence there. The reason, by the way, is that people don't take it seriously. You know, I've tried to get research going, but how could anything so simple work? So it's not even thought of as something you should study. It does not bother me that there's no evidence there because the potential for this breathing technique to cause harm is insignificant. And the experiential evidence that I have for its benefit is very great. So I feel quite comfortable recommending that. At the same time, encouraging people to do research because I'd love to see published data that would encourage other people to recommend it to people. Now, people are vulnerable when they're sick, especially those who are chronically ill, who haven't got a diagnosis in conventional medicine, who are looking for help anywhere. They're willing to believe anything and anyone. I could have been in that category when I met you 12 years ago. I was very sick. How do you know, A, that what they're trying isn't dangerous, but also, B, that what they're doing isn't just... If they're recovering, it's not down to the placebo effect, that it's it's down to belief. The first consideration, is it dangerous? And I think that in evaluating new therapies or therapies which have not well been studied, the first consideration is, can it cause harm? If you can assure yourself that it's not harmful, then it may be okay to experiment with it. In terms of figuring out whether any benefit observed is directly due to the treatment or is an indirect effect due to belief, I don't think you can ever know that. That's unknowable because you can't separate mind and body. They are two aspects of the same reality. And I think we have to learn to be comfortable with that uncertainty. I think the placebo response is the greatest ally that physicians have. And rather than worrying about how to try to rule it out, we should be figuring out how to make it happen more at the time and elicit it with treatments that are less invasive, less costly, less harmful, if possible. So in integrative medicine, we advocate using more natural, less invasive therapies first, and that you use the least invasive, least harmful, least costly interventions as dictated by the circumstances of illness. If a patient has critical illness, of course the methods that you use have to be more drastic. You know, that this is really the essence of what we teach at the Center for Integrative Medicine. We've, by the way, now graduated over 1,000 physicians from very intensive two-year trainings, including, I'm happy to say, a number from the UK now. At what point could you become a victim of your own success in promoting this form of medicine? More and more people jump on the bandwagon. You've got doctors setting up everywhere, calling themselves integrative, holistic, alternative. This is a problem, and uh, we are in the process of creating a specialty board that will certify specialists in integrative medicine. I resisted this for a long time because I don't want to see integrative medicine become a subspecialty. I think it's foundational to all medicine. Nonetheless, I think it's important for the public to be able to distinguish practitioners who have had rigorous training in integrative medicine from those who just, as you say, hang out a shingle and calling themselves integrative practitioners. Now, just back to the criticisms briefly. People, even on the other side, you've got mainstream doctors criticising you for lack of science, and then on the other side, you've got people in the holistic field saying you went commercial with your supplements and your products, your true food restaurants, you've sold out, you've lost credibility, you can't criticise mainstream medicine anymore. There's another area of criticism you didn't mention, which is I get a lot from the alternative medical community that I'm much too allopathic. So all of that tells me I'm in the right place. With regard to the commercial activities, uh, this was a very tough decision for me. Our... uh, center now has quite a large operating budget. I don't know what it's up to now. It's something like uh, seven or eight million dollars a year. 
We depend a lot on private philanthropy. We get some money from the federal government. We don't get any money from the state of Arizona. So it's a challenge to meet that budget every year. So I agreed to license my name and likeness to products that I thought were worthwhile. And I have a very careful vetting process of things that I endorse. I don't receive any money from this. The restaurants, that's a separate category. That's a private venture of mine, which is fun. But all the other things, all of my after-tax profits are donated to a foundation that I set up, the Weill Foundation, which has now given away, I think, close to $6 million for integrative medicine education a lot to the University of Arizona, but also to a number of other integrative medicine centers and individuals. Is there a danger in setting up a new model of medicine that you might jettison the old, throw the baby out with the bathwater? I don't think there's any danger of that. I mean, this is the essence of integrative medicine, is that it is grounded in conventional medicine. We are trying to enhance and expand the efficacy of medicine. And I've always said that the sign of our success is that one day we'll drop the word integrative and it'll just be medicine, it'll just be good medicine. And I think we're close to seeing that happen. Are you finding people listening abroad in the UK, for instance? Yeah, this is, it's interesting around the world. I would say Western Europe has been relatively slow to come around to this. And I think the reason is that even though in many countries like the UK, like Germany, like German-speaking Europe, there are very strong cultural traditions of, say, herbal medicine or homeopathy, the allopathic medical profession remains very authoritarian and paternalistic and contemptuous of all this stuff. But it's changing. As I said, we've started getting our first fellows. We've gotten several from Denmark, Holland. We've got a number from the UK. This is very encouraging. And we've gotten a few from Latin America, but we've had tremendous numbers from Japan, from Korea, from the Middle East. China has a a fairly robust tradition of what they call integrated medicine, a little different from ours, but it's an integration of traditional Chinese medicine with Western medicine. It does not have as much emphasis on lifestyle, and there's certainly nothing about spirituality there. But you see this beginning to happen, and it so clearly correlates with the economic viability of the conventional system. You know, well, look at the UK. I mean, the NHS was the pride and joy you know, of Britain. And, you know, it doesn't work anymore. As these systems break down because of the forces I mentioned earlier, then openness to integrative medicine begins to develop. You think paradigm shifts are led by economic forces? I, I reluctantly have to say that. I mean, just looking back on my own career, I think no amount of ideological argument moved anything. It's only when the purses of medical institutions began to be squeezed so much that they started to open to integrative medicine. Mentioning paradigm shifts, you clearly believe that conventional medicine is itself to some degree belief-based. It's rooted Absolutely. in a materialistic yeah. philosophy. Yeah. A lot of people would disagree and say you're just relativizing everything. I think materialism, as it dominates Western science and medicine, is very limiting. And I think it's one reason why we are unable to deal with a lot of the diseases that are so prevalent in our society and why we are so focused on giving physical treatments. You know, it's interesting that I think if you told the average doctor to manage a case without giving a drug, he or she wouldn't know what to do. And if you told a patient they weren't going to get a prescription, they'd be angry and go to another doctor. But I think that's where materialist philosophy in medicine has led us, to total reliance on substances. Interestingly, on my way over here, I met a psychiatrist who'd stopped practicing medicine because she said she was sick of just prescribing drugs, of suppressing symptoms, and now she doesn't know whether she's supposed to practice medicine at all or just jettison the whole so, thing. So, see, we've gotten a lot of the people who come to us for training, and we've had many psychiatrists, 
say just this, that they were on the verge of dropping out of medicine until they discovered integrative medicine. And now they feel they have a whole community of like-minded people and that's restored their faith in why they went into medicine in the first place. Psychiatry is, I think, in a particularly unfortunate situation. I mean, the word psychiatry comes from Greek roots. It literally means soul doctoring. I mean, what a wonderful concept. And it's ironic that of all specialties, psychiatry is, I think, most mired in materialistic philosophy. And so every mental, emotional disturbance is seen as being a matter of disordered brain biochemistry, and therefore the only treatment is giving chemicals to correct that. So would you say your mission is to restore the soul of medicine? I think that's a good way of putting it, yes. So maybe spirituality is, for you, a therapeutic tool like chocolate and exercise. (laughs) Yeah, I think, well, and also spirituality is part of my life. I think spirituality connects us to everything out there, whether it's animate or inanimate. You know, everything has this kind of essence in it. And I think feeling that kind of connection is one part of being healthy. One very last thing. If we have an innate ability to heal ourselves, and that's why I came to you, I read Spontaneous Healing and thought, great, I just need someone to help me unlock it. Did I really need someone to help me unlock it like you, or should the doctor not just get out of the way and let nature take its course? Well, the problem is that the part of our mind that we think with and have our volition in does not connect directly with the machinery of the body and the healing system of the body. And so we have to find some way around that. And one way is by working with a practitioner that we believe in. When I sit with patients, always at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why is healing not happening here? You know, what's blocking it? Is there anything I can do from outside that can facilitate that process? Sometimes that's just reinforcing their belief that they can get better. Many patients over the years have told me that the most valuable thing I did for them was to tell them that I could get better, and they'd never met a doctor who told them it was possible for them to get better. So that's quite simple. But in other times, I can steer people toward doing things, toward modification of lifestyle practices, towards using therapies, which may be conventional or maybe unconventional, that might help the healing process in them. So I think people need guides. Dr. Andrew Weil, thank you. Good. Pleasure. You've been listening to Things Unseen, the program for people who wonder if there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.